Is anybody ready to get into the word? Let me hear you this morning. Yeah. All right, then grab your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our series called The Blessed Life, unpacking uh, what it looks like to live as kingdom citizens. Last week, as you're turning there, I'll just tell you, it's one of my favorite sermons. Um, and just the dialogue that I've had all week long, just uh, people telling me, man, this, that really made sense. And you, you brought so much passion last week and you were really animated. And man, I sensed y'all leaning in and there was just this conversation that began to happen throughout uh, last week as a result of the sermon. And, and just really you guys leaning in and there was just one uh, pressing question just kept coming over and over and over again all week long uh, from you as a response to the sermon. And that was, what did I have that was so good and what restaurant was it? If you're laughing, you were here last week. And like, after, I mean, I preached my guts out and the number one question was, what was the food and what restaurant was it? Anybody curious about that? Matthew chapter five, start with me in verse number seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, these are the next set of Beatitudes that we are unpacking, but I want to remember what we talked about last week. We unpacked the first four Beatitudes, and really what we saw was that in the first four, the poor in spirit and those who are mourning, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's a picture of the various postures that describe the disposition that we should live with as kingdom citizens before God. In fact, here's what we saw. We, we saw this picture of that when we're poor in spirit, it leads us to mourning and mourning over the brokenness of our sin leads us to submitting to God's will. And we're in this posture. It leads us then to the posture of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that the life of Jesus is what we're desperate for when we operate in these postures. And then this, the circle represents that these are simultaneously happening in our life. This is the disposition that we are to live with as kingdom citizens, that the posture we assumed to enter into the kingdom is now the posture we live in as those who are citizens of the kingdom. And what we're gonna see this morning is, is that when we live like this, the righteousness that we're feasting on, the life of Christ, is going to be appropriated in me so that then the character of Jesus is lived through me. And here's what I mean. The character of Jesus. Say, what is the character of Jesus? Look at the next slide here. There we go. So when we live like this, it's gonna lead us to living in this, that the character of Jesus, that we will become a merciful people, people who are impure in heart, peacemakers. That the, these words here, these attributes we're gonna unpack this morning, this is a description of the character of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Now, notice how they work together. We're gonna put a circle around them and I want you to see this. As I live in this disposition, I'm living a life where now I am feasting on the life of Christ, desperate for the life of Christ to become my life. And from this, I'm gonna flow into now a life that looks like Jesus. So the character of Jesus is simply the appropriation of the righteousness that I've received in him. And when I live a life of feasting on his righteousness, I begin to be a person that reflects his uncommon character. And this is what we're gonna unpack this morning. And so I want us to look at these three uncommon character traits of Jesus and what it looks like for us to live in them. So there are three of them. Let's examine them. Verse seven is where we find the first one. Here's what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive 
mercy. So what does it mean? What is Jesus referring to when he says, blessed are the merciful? Let me give you a definition of what I believe Jesus is talking about. Being merciful means that we have a feeling of deep sympathy for the sufferings or sins of others that moves us to extend kindness or forgiveness towards them. Listen to this. Especially when they don't deserve it. Why? Because that's what Jesus extended to us. We're gonna leave this up there if you're a note taker so you can write this down. But that's what it means when Jesus is blessed or the merciful. This is what it means to be merciful. Now here's what I would contest. I would say that being merciful is the greatest indicator of the righteousness of Jesus being at work in your life. You say, why would that be the number one indicator? It's because the very basis of the gospel begins with mercy. Mercy is where the gospel begins. The gospel is all about Jesus' willingness to step into my brokenness in order to meet me in my sin and offer me what I don't deserve, which is forgiveness. That Jesus initiates mercy. So when you think about what it means to be merciful, Jesus embodies what it means to be merciful. Now notice what he says here. He says, he says, for they, this is the merciful, shall receive mercy. Now, I wanna make sure we understand something here. This promise that we get that if you're merciful, you obtain mercy. I believe he's talking about the mercy of God on the day of judgment. That when, we, when, the, when, when all is said and done and God's judgment is executed finally on creation, that we who are in Christ will receive mercy on that day. But I wanna clarify something. I don't believe that Jesus is saying that in order to get mercy on that day, you've gotta give mercy today. I don't believe Jesus is saying that you give mercy, you'll get mercy, because that would be a works-based relationship with God. And honestly, it would lose the significance of what mercy really means. I don't get it because I deserve it. Mercy is something that even though I don't deserve it, God graciously allows me to experience. So what is Jesus saying? Here's what I believe he's saying, is that a person who lives a life that is full of mercy is living a life that evidences that they have experienced the mercy of God in Christ on their life. And so in other words, because I've received mercy from Jesus, I give mercy to others. And because that reality exists in my life, that is proof that on the day of judgment, I will receive mercy. You see, being merciful isn't the work for salvation, it's the result of salvation. And here is the idea. As followers of Jesus who have been, uh, who have experienced his mercy, we should be merciful people. And I love this, merciful. What, what does that mean? It means to be full of what? Of mercy, to be full of it. Now, we're full of a lot of stuff, right? But oftentimes mercy is not one of those things that we're full of. So let me ask you this question. Uh, what does it mean to be full of, of mercy? So what he's saying here is, is that blessed are the merciful, those who are full of mercy. And he says, are the merciful. Why? Because he's not saying blessed are those who sometimes do mercy. Or blessed are those who sometimes occasionally will show mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful, are being. That's the idea. Listen, as a follower of Jesus, he is talking about not being a person who extends mercy occasionally, but rather because I'm full of mercy, mercy flows from me, it's not forced by me. Are you with me? Because that's what's inside of me. How do we know what's inside of us? What comes out of us when we're squeezed? So let me ask you this rhetorical question, but I do want you to answer it. 
What is a ketchup bottle full of? What is it? Ketchup. What is a tube of toothpaste full of? Toothpaste. Now, how do you know that? It's because when you squeeze the bottle, ketchup comes out. When you squeeze the tube, toothpaste comes out. In other words, you know what's in something by what comes out of it when it's squeezed. So when you begin to ask this question of your own life, am I a person who's full of mercy? You need to ask yourself this question. A better question would be is what comes out of me when socially or relationally I'm squeezed? Because what is really in you will come out of you when life gets difficult. I mean, it's really easy to talk about mercy when it's not required to give it away. But if you wanna know whether you're a person who goes from, I agree with mercy to actually being full of mercy, you need to ask yourself this question. What is my response when I'm sinned against, when I'm lied about? When, when someone does something to harm me, when someone inflicts pain, when injustice happens to me, what comes out of me in that moment? Because what's coming out of you in that moment is what you're full of. Here's another question, taking you out of the equation about you. What comes out of you when others experience injustice? When others are treated wrongly? What is your response to sympathy and mercy for them, compassion flow out of you, or to cynicism? Here's another question. Let me just really get down into the weeds. What comes out of you when something bad happens to someone that you deem as bad? They got what they deserved. I'm glad that happened. It's about time. That's a lot of what comes out of us in those moments, is it not? To be full of mercy means that when you're squeezed, socially or relationally, mercy is what comes out of you. And let me just help you. There are seasons of life that you will go through where God will intentionally put you in social and relational situations so that you can be squeezed, not so that he can discover what's in you, but so that you can discover what's in you. And this is critical for us. Why is this so critical? Listen, we, we live in a sin-sick filled world, do we not? So let's just confess. Everybody raise your hand if this is true of you. I am a sinner. If you didn't raise your hand, you didn't understand the question. Like we're all sinners. Here's what that means for you and I. We will be sinned against and we will sin against others. Because in this room we are full of sinners, sin is gonna happen and we are all gonna feel the effects, the brokenness and the consequences of sin. So in order for humanity to be able to flourish and in order for us to have healthy relationships, mercy is a key component. Otherwise, listen, if we in a sin-filled world where we know we're gonna sin and others are gonna sin against us, if we don't develop this character of Jesus in our life where we are full of mercy, we will have tragic relationships at worst and unhealthy at best. Mercy, it's, it's critical for us. Here's, here's what I wanna make sure we understand. I, I, I know that for some of you in this room, when you hear this, because there are very real pains in your life. Like we're not talking about he said this and it was just kind of dumb and we're now we're mad at each other. I'm talking about real deep wounds, abuse that have happened to you. Sin that, is, that, is, that has hit you to the core of your being. Something maybe a friend or a family member or a spouse or a mother or father. A wound that is deep in your soul and you feel it. And you hear this and you begin to cringe because you're like, I don't, I don't know that I can feel that toward them. Let me help you breathe just for a moment. Listen, when we talk about mercy, 
Mercy doesn't mean you have to dismiss the pain. Mercy doesn't mean that you have to eliminate justice. Mercy and justice are not at odds. In fact, God is merciful and just. Mercy doesn't mean that you necessarily have to reconcile the relationship. Sometimes the relationship is irreconcilable. It's not possible to reconcile. Listen, but mercy is always possible in Christ. And it's necessary for us. So practically speaking, let me just help you just for a minute. Practically speaking, this is why mercy is so hard for us. Let me write this down if you're taking notes. Typically, when we get wounded by someone, we create two categories on the spot. And the categories are victim and villain. Victim and villain. And then we begin to see ourselves and the offender through the lens of those categories. I'm the victim. They're the villain. They've wronged me. They've hurt me. And look what has happened to me. And this is the way I feel. And listen, sometimes it's true. You are the victim. And listen, if someone's wronged you, it is what it is. But we see ourselves only through the lens of victim or we see them only through the lens of villain. They did this. This is who they are. You don't know them. And so every time the person's name comes up, every time they say something to you, every time you see them, immediately those categories, victim, villain, and it dominates the relationship and causes you to feel anxiety and anxiousness and bitter toward them. Am I speaking truth? Victim and villain. And, and this begins, begins to be the way that we view the people in the relationship. Now, here, here's what I want to encourage you to do. There's two things. I learned the first one from a pastor named Brian Luritz who taught on this passage. The second one I've kind of extended from his first one. But there are two things that I believe will help us walk in mercy rather than walking in the victim-villain relationship that we create far too often. Here's number one. Write this down. Listen to this. Learn to see them, the offender, in light of their story, not in light of their sin. Learn to see them in light of their story, not their sin. Brian Loritz, when he teaches this point in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the illustration of the woman at the well. Now you talk about a woman with a story, but also a woman with a title. This woman had the title of being the homewrecker of the community. I mean, it's broken marriage after broken marriage. Not just her marriage, but she's breaking up marriages. I mean, she is the talk of the community. In fact, she's getting water from the well at a time of the day when no one gets water from the well because she didn't want to be around people and people didn't want to be around her. Everyone knew her by the name villain. It was her sin that became her identity and everyone viewed her in that category. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he extends mercy to her, first of all, by just entering into a conversation with her. No man ever really wanted a conversation with her. They just wanted something from her. But he leans in and he begins to unpack what? Her story. And in unpacking her story, she receives the mercy of Jesus and her heart is transformed. We need to learn people's story, not just see them in light of their sin. I, I, there's a silly fictional illustration of this. My wife from my 40th Birthday surprised me a few years back with uh, taking me to New York to see a Broadway show. Always wanted to go to a Broadway show. Believe it or not, growing up in Southwest Arkansas, we didn't have Broadway shows. Shocking, I know. 
And so I couldn't wait to go. She bought us tickets to go to see Wicked, which is, I was heard it was so good. Well, you don't know the story of Wicked. Wicked is the story of the Wicked Witch from the West. So if you know Wizard of Oz, you know that you only know her as the Wicked Witch, Wicked Witch from the West. And she's bad and she's a villain and everything in the story is centered around the fear everybody has for her and how bad of a person she is. Well, Wicked gives you the backstory of the Wicked Witch of the West. It tells her life and the hurts and the pain and the betrayal and the fact that she could never do enough. And because of this, it led her to this cynicism of life where eventually she became the Wicked Witch of the West. And the whole point of the, of the play was to help you sympathize and see her not as a villain, but as also someone who has been wounded. You see, I think it's critical for us to look past the pain that someone has inflicted into our life and peek into the pain that someone else has inflicted in their life. Y'all have heard this cliche and this slogan, hurt people, what? Hurt people. And that is so true. Hurt people, hurt people. And so if we could ever move out of the victim-villain relationship and begin to see a person not in light of their sin, but in light of their story, here's what that does for us. Listen, here's what it does. It moves them out of the category of villain and allows us to see them as a person, as an individual who has hurts, pains, baggage, issues just like we have, and it creates a sympathy that leads us then to walk in mercy. Here's the second one. Here's my addendum to his first statement. Here's number two. Not only see them in light of their story, not their sin. Listen to this. See yourself through what's been done for you by Jesus, not what's been done to you by others. So now we're not only going to move them out of the villain category, we're going to move you out of the victim category. So seeing yourself not merely in light of what this person has done to you, but seeing yourself by what Jesus has done for you. This is a, means you see yourself through the lens of the gospel. You see yourself not as merely a victim of what someone has done to me, but rather clearly the sin that you have done toward God and that he, in response to your sin, has given grace and mercy instead of judgment and condemnation. Jesus, talking about this need for mercy and forgiveness, was having a conversation, and Peter asked this question in Matthew 18. He said, Jesus, we really have to forgive people? Like, how many times is enough? When do we get to say, enough is enough? Jesus tells a story. He says, let me tell you about a king one time who was gonna settle accounts with the servants. He called one man in and this man had a debt and the equivalent that Jesus gives in modern day money would be close to $3 billion in debt. This guy owed him, matter of fact, they put the time frame on it. This would take about 200,000 years for this man to pay the debt off. In other words, Jesus is painting the picture of an impossible debt to repay. Insurmountable debt. A debt that he owed, he couldn't deny, but he could not reconcile. So the master said, the king said, I'm gonna lock your family up and hold you captive until you pay every last penny. And the man falls and says, I could never repay that debt. And he, he confesses, I need your mercy, I need your grace. It says the king had pity on him and forgave him the debt. That man gets up and he walks out and he goes and finds a servant of his who owes him what's equivalent to $10,000, three billion, now 10,000. He doesn't even give the guy a chance. He beats him and he throws him in prison and says, you're gonna stay locked up as my servant until you pay back every single penny. He has been forgiven three billion, but he can't forgive 10,000. 
And Jesus says the king is furious. He calls him in and says, man, I've forgiven you this great debt and you can't forgive such a small debt. You are wicked. He says, I now hold you responsible for all of your debt. What is Jesus articulating? This is what he has done for us. He is the king. We have a debt we can't pay. We have a debt we can't deny. There's no way we can ever overcome the sin debt. But King Jesus comes in. We plead for mercy and grace. He has pity on us. He forgives every single area of our failure, wiping the debt clean. And here is the point. If we have been forgiven of such a great debt, how could we not forgive the debt of others? And listen, I know in this room, there may be some very deep and real pains. And I'm not minimizing your pain, but here's what you need to know. Nothing you've experienced in this life at the hand of man equals the offense that you've committed toward God. And I don't care how good you are. Our sins nailed the Son of God to a cross. If you've received mercy, you become one who distribute mercy. So see yourself not in light of what's been done to you, but what's been done for you in Jesus. You see, the statement is true. Hurt people hurt people. But guess what? Also, it's true. People who've experienced mercy will give mercy. And this is what Jesus is calling us to here in this beatitude. Why is this so important? It's because undealt with relational wounds, listen to me, will create an infection called bitterness and cynicism. And bitterness and cynicism will consume you and destroy every relationship you have. And the only antibiotic you can take to clear up the infection of bitterness or cynicism is mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Here's character trait number two. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse eight, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. So this is the second character trait we see. We see this being a demonstration of God's righteousness in our life. So what does he mean when he says blessed are pure in heart? What does this mean for us? To be pure in heart simply means to possess an inner desire to please God by keeping our hearts free from anything that might grieve him or deceive others. That's what it means to be pure in heart. So, so biblically speaking, what is Jesus saying when he is talking about being pure in heart? The heart, biblically speaking, is the center of the person. But he's not talking about the thing beating inside your chest. He's talking about the essence of who you are. And so make no mistake here, when Jesus talks about blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, he is not merely talking about external conformity to a religious system, doing things because you have to do it. He's talking about the very core of your being, the very center of who you are as a person. It's a heart issue. I mean, everything that we have broken in the world today is all a symptom of a heart issue. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 15 about the condition of our heart apart from him. Look what he says here. He says, for out of the heart, the center of who we are, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus is saying that the root issue of humanity is a heart condition. So it's not merely, listen to this, what I do the issue is who I am. Why do I lie? Because I'm a liar. Why do I cheat? Because I'm a cheater. 
Why do I battle lust? Because lust is in my heart. We are not people who just mess up. We are, apart from Jesus, sick sinners who have a spring of sin that dwells in us, that flows out of us. And this is why religion is so foolish. Because all religion can do is manage the exterior appearance of our life, but it cannot deal with the interior condition of our soul. Religion can only dress us up. So imagine you've, you've had this heart issue and you need a heart transplant and your heart is failing and you get there and they're gonna have a heart transplant. But rather than giving you the heart transplant, the doctor walks in and says, hey, I see your chart. I kind of see what's going on here, but I've noticed that you had a cut on your finger. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna work on the cut on your finger and, um, and see if that doesn't take care of the issue. You would probably go, you have lost your minds, doctor, and I'm not paying this bill. Why? Because that cut on your finger means nothing. They could sew it up, bandage it up, wash it and clean it, it's fine. But unless they deal with the real issue, which is the heart, you're gonna die. You see, the gospel is greater than religion because the gospel in Christ, when we trust in his death and resurrection, he makes us alive, which means we get a heart transplant. This is what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied would come through Jesus. Look what he says, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. In other words, the heart that Jesus referred to in Matthew 15, the heart that's full of sin and rebellion and, and an evil nature. He says, I'm gonna remove that heart and I'm gonna replace it with a heart of flesh. And then I'm gonna put my spirit within you. And then I'm gonna cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, it's an inside out job, not outside in. Jesus and the gospel deals with our heart. So now listen to this. Because we've received a new heart in Christ, now as kingdom citizens, we live a life that desires to please God. Which means we wanna abstain from anything that would grieve God. So here's the question, what grieves God? It's a little word, S-I-N. Sin grieves the heart of God. And as men and women who have received a new heart, we ought to walk in the purity of heart that says, I want to live a life that is freed from anything that would bring grief to God. This is important for us to see, that we would want to avoid sin at any cost, that we desire to please God more than please self. Therefore, we can't tolerate in our life anything that would grieve him. And here's what I'm learning, almost 27 years of being a Christ follower. Here's what I think I'm just now starting to really understand. Listen to this statement. I cannot pursue Jesus while simultaneously tolerating sin. I cannot pursue Jesus while simultaneously tolerating sin. It can't happen. Therefore, in my actions and my motives and my words and my thoughts and my treatments of others, I wanna strive to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, remember the promise that he gives here. The promise is what? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. Now, what in the world is he talking about? They shall see God. Now, let me help you with this. Last week, we talked about some of the promises of God are already but not yet. 
In other words, we have a little bit of them now, but the fullness of it's gonna come later. I think this is another already not yet promise. So the not yet is this, is that there's a day coming when Christ returns, he will redeem and all make all things new and we will live forever in the very presence of God. Now think about the significance of this. If you remember the Old Testament story where Moses goes up to the mountain and he's meeting with God and he makes this request. He says, I wanna see the face of God. And what was the response that he was given? No man can see the face of God and live. So he only got the tail end of God's glory and that was enough to overwhelm everyone. But listen to me, saint, there's a coming a day when Christ is gonna return. So here is the truth of the gospel. In Christ, I am made pure. I am covered in the righteousness of Christ. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, this righteousness is being imparted into my life on an ongoing basis so that out now in Christ, I'm being purified. But there is a day coming when my King is gonna return and he is gonna make all things new and all impurity will be done away with forever. And on that day, we will see God face to face. We will see God. I love how D.A. Carson summarizes the significance of that truth for us in our everyday life. Listen to what Carson says. He says, when Jesus Christ himself appears, we shall be like him. That's 1 John 3, 2. This is our long range expectation, our hope. On this basis, John argues, everyone who has this hope in him that is in Christ purifies himself. This is ongoing sanctification, just as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. In other words, according to John, the Christian purifies himself now because pure is what he will ultimately be. His present efforts are consistent with his future hope. Because being purified completely is where I'm going. That's who I'm becoming now. And a lot of the fact that I get to see God, but this is also a now. Now lean into this for a minute. This is also a now promise that we as the redeemed, as kingdom citizens, when we walk in a purity of heart, where we want to avoid those things that grieve the heart of God, here's what we know. We can know God now. We can see his activity in our life today. We can understand his ways. We can experience his presence. But here's what we need to know. Sin hinders our ability to see God's work in our lives. Sin hinders this. It gets in the way of us seeing God's activity in our lives today. But the more my heart is free from idolatry and deceit and false motives and lust and sinful actions, whenever I'm quick to resolve conflict rather than letting bitterness interfere with my life, listen to this, the more clearly I will hear the voice of God, the more clearly I will see his activity in my life, and the more frequently I will engage his presence. Listen, make no mistake, sin hinders our life. But purity allows us to engage and to see God move in us in ways that we cannot when we're walking in sin. J.D. Greer makes this statement, I love it. Here's what it simply says to summarize this. J.D. Greer says, purity produces clarity. Purity produces clarity. So maybe you're in a season where the voice of God is silent, Maybe you're in a season where you can't see God's activity in your life. You're not sensing, you're like, God's in the dark. Here's the question. Is there things in your life, are there things that you're allowing in your life to remain 
that are causing you to not see clearly God's activity in your life. It's like this. I, I, went, I had to wear my sunglasses the other day with um, my mask. I know some of you glasses wearers, you hate these masks because it fogs up your glasses all the time. You got to wear the mask high or wear, wear the mask a little low below your nose, which is kind of, you know, not pointless. But we hate it. Why? Because when you, when you have the mask on, it fogs up your glasses and causes you to not be able to see. The same is true in our life. When we mask our sin versus confess our sin, it fogs our spiritual lenses and keeps us from seeing God as clearly as we need to. And this leads me now to number three. Number three, the third character trait we see here, this attribute that's so pivotal is verse nine. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Everybody say peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Look, look at this definition here. To be a peacemaker means to live a life that strives to live peaceably with others and actively pursues reconciliation wherever strife or conflict exists. Now, notice this. He doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful or blessed are those who desire peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. There's a drastic difference between being someone who likes peace and someone who makes peace. So what he's talking about here is not passivity, not ignoring conflict, but rather in humility, initiating forgiveness when you've been hurt or offended, acknowledging and owning your own sin when you've made a mistake, eliminating any further strife or problems, avoiding senseless rhetoric, I mean, getting, really getting honest about our condition. See, many of us, here's how we live. We live this life. We, uh, we have the live and let live mentality and we confuse that with being a peacemaker. Or we just say, you know what? People do, people are gonna do. Man, that's, that's between them. I'm not gonna get involved. Or maybe it's this one. I'm just gonna go along to get along. And all the while, we do this under the banner of, man, I'm just, I'm just a peacemaker. I'm just a peaceful person. No, peacemakers don't ignore issues. They deal with them. Peacemakers don't sweep offenses under the rug. They bring them into the light so they can be dealt with and grace, forgiveness, and mercy might be walked in. It's active. So let me give you the two statements. Let me break them down for you to help you with this. And this is so critical. In, in my years of, of experience with with dealing with people with relationship issues, I've, I realized this, 90% of the problems in relationships aren't one big thing. Like very few times have I came in, it was like everything was perfect and then the hammer dropped and boom, everything blew up. It was rather about a thousand small things that never got dealt with that led to the breakdown. So let me give you a couple of statements here. It's in this little definition. The first is this. We, 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 see, we become peacemakers by striving to live peaceably with others. This doesn't mean that we ignore conflict. It means that we deal with it. We own our sin. We forgive the sin of others. We, we, we avoid senseless rhetoric, arguing over irrelevant issues. The, the, the amount of things that we break up relationships over is maddening. We'll have decades of issues with Mimi because Mimi said something about the casserole that mama brought to the family get-together and now all of a sudden we can't go to family get-togethers because of what Mimi said. You're like, all she said was she didn't think the broccoli casserole was that great. Y'all laughing because you know it's your family as well as mine. 
just, just ridiculous. Oh, this one, I can't believe they looked at me like that. Like, <laughs> like what? Like, like, like they, they, I saw them and I walked in, they went like this and they turned around. I, I, I don't think we can be friends anymore. I'm gonna post something on Facebook. <laughs> I'm not gonna say their name. I'm just gonna say people, but really one person. And just clarified enough where everyone knows who you're talking about. Peacemakers avoid this nonsense. The things that we fight over and argue over, the, the areas of our life where we're not willing to simply say, you know what, I didn't intend to, but listen, intentions don't matter, you were hurt, therefore I wanna own what I did. Or giving someone the benefit of the doubt and saying, look, I know you didn't mean to, but this is what it made me feel like, and so I, wanna, I wanted to bring that to your attention. Well, I didn't see it, I, I know you didn't, but I just want you to know, it, it bothered me, but man, I, I forgive that and moving on. So second is this, actively pursuing peace wherever strife or conflict exist. Listen to this. This means that you've gotta be willing to enter into the conflict in order to bring about reconciliation. You gotta be willing to, to get your hands dirty. It's not ignoring people at odds with one another. It's being a peacemaker, which means I see two people who are having a struggle or two groups having a struggle. And I, rather than being a divider or an ignorer, I'm gonna step in and be a mediator. Now, listen to me, eyes right here for a minute. There is a massive difference between being a meddler and a mediator. And sometimes we confuse the two. The meddler wants the scoop, wants the story, wants the insight, wants the conversation. And I'm gonna talk with this person and get the scoop. I'm like, that's really good. And then I'm gonna go over here and say, man, I think she was saying some something over here. And what did you, tell me your story. And you're like, oh, that was good too. And in, in prayer requests with your life group, all of a sudden we go, I've got some burdens I need to share. And you got the scoop about the deal. And you've got the story about the person. And you're doing it all under the banner of spirituality when the truth is you're just a meddler. How, how do you tell the difference between meddlers and mediators? The meddler wants the scoop. The mediator wants reconciliation. So the mediator, listen, the difference is this. The mediator's responsibility is to take the hand of one party and to take the hand of the other party and say, let's sit down and say some hard stuff so that we can resolve the issue. A neutral party that says, I want this to stop. It's eating you up. It's eating you up. And listen, we need to let Jesus and his truth reveal what needs to be revealed so that we can forgive and we can move forward in unity together. But it's hard being a mediator. You know why? Because mediators sometimes have to say, I can't let you go any further in the conversation because I can't let you say about them what you're not willing to say to them. But if you want, I'll go with you and we can sit down and we can work toward reconciliation. So you know what's gonna happen? You're getting a lot fewer phone calls. You will. So let me just help you. How do y'all know if I'm a meddler or a mediator? If your phone's the one blowing up and everybody's wanting to give you the scoop, most likely you're probably a meddler, not a mediator. We gotta walk in this truth of being peacemakers. And listen, this is critical for us. In the current cultural climate that we are in, it is critical. We are divided, listen, as a nation. We are divided as a community. We are politically divided, racially divided, socially divided. 
And you say, Pastor, why in the world do you keep bringing this up every few weeks? And here's why. We can't get away from it. It's right here. The fire of animosity and culture is out of control. It is blazing like it's never blazed before. And far too many Christians are pouring gasoline on the fire rather than bringing the peace making water of Jesus. And we have been called to be peacemakers, not to throw our little comment grenade on social media. And now we got a war going on between two or three people, most of whom know one another. And I'm like, man, don't you have their number in your contacts? And you're fighting over this on Facebook? And what's happened is with this issue of politics and race and the things that we're facing, we are, listen, we are playing into the hand of the world's playbook rather than walking in the playbook of the kingdom of God, which means peacemaker. You know what that means? It means that you actually sit down with someone and you have meaningful conversations. You talk about differences and you go there not to educate, but to be educated to hear and to share and to talk and to work through this in, in a brotherly, sisterly love. And listen, and it might not resolve the differences that we have, but the differences we have doesn't destroy the relationship that we want. And listen, until the church of Jesus Christ steps in and begins to initiate peacemaking, this world is gonna continue to be a world where peace is lacking. But what would happen if we entered into the equation and said, no, 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 we're gonna bring a different flavor of life. We're gonna bring a different approach. We don't talk like the world, think like the world, respond like the world. We sit down and we lean in and we press and we love and we extend mercy and we hear stories and we feel pain and we listen to what someone else is feeling so that in this, it's not me winning an argument, but rather winning a brother or sister. Reconciliation. And it is critical to the mission you see, why is it so critical to the mission and how do you know it's so critical to the mission? Let me tell you, this issue of how we relate to people who are enemies of ours or hurt us, this whole issue of, of reconciliation and peacemaking, it dominates the Sermon on the Mount more than any subject in the whole sermon. Jesus is gonna come back to this over and over and over again about this idea of being a peacemaker and loving your enemy and caring for them and not an eye for an eye, but extending mercy where, where, where meanness has been given to us. Why is this so important? It's because Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus stepped into the hostile world of humanity in order to bridge the gap between God and man, the Enmity that existed between us, Jesus on the cross reconciles us to God. And in reconciling us to God, he then makes peace with man so that the vertical peacemaking that Jesus does leads to horizontal peacemaking. And so now those of us who have been reconciled to God and one another through the cross, we now live in a broken world as peacemakers so that everybody gets to see the peacemaker that is Jesus. This is how we live. And this is critical for us to understand this. The world needs this. But notice the promise here. This is beautiful. The promise is simply this. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called, listen to this, 
sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. Now, ladies, I want to tell you something here. Some of you might be asking the question, why sons of God? Why not children of God? Let me just tell you, we don't want to change it to children of God, and here's why. It's because this passage of Scripture is written for a particular culture. And in this particular culture, check this out, the sons were believed to be the one who displayed the character of their father. It was believed that it was through the son or the sons that the nature of the father was most evidenced. So you ever heard of the phrase, he's a chip off the old block? Like father, like son. Now notice what's being said here. He says, when we become peacemakers, we, regardless of what gender you are, you are called the sons of God. In other words, you are identified as those who bear the character of your father, who look like your daddy. But I love this because I'm thinking about my own son. My own son, Noah, if you've ever seen Noah, you know he is like the carbon copy of me. Like there is no denying that boy. In fact, we were, somebody was telling us the other day how, how we, much we look alike. And at home that night, uh, he was picking at me. He said something like, he goes, were well, you just ugly? And I'm like, well, baby says, I look just like you. Or you look just like me. And I said, so I guess you're calling yourself ugly. He says, no, dad. He goes, you're the rough draft. I'm the finished product. He's more like his father than he knows. <laughs> so there are times where people go, he is his daddy's boy. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree when they see Noah. People recognize that, but that's not necessarily what's happening in the text. This is called a divine passive, which means it's being said about us by God. It's one thing for someone to see Noah and then see me and go, like father, like son. It's another thing for me as his daddy who loves him to watch him. And there are things that I see that he's displaying and I look at him and I'm with, overwhelmed with pride and go, that's my son. He's mine. That's the blessing of being peacemakers. God the Father looks at us and says, that's, it's my son. They belong to me. They look like me. And I want you to see how these things work together. Don't miss this as we make sure that we hang on to what makes these things possible. And that is the gospel thread that is woven through the entire thing. How can I become merciful? By first receiving mercy. Mercy doesn't originate in me, it originates in Christ. Therefore, when I receive the mercy of God, He transforms me and I become a merciful person. How do I walk in a purity of heart? I can't because my heart is broken and it's sinful and it's deceptive. But Jesus on the cross died and resurrected and now in Him, I've received a new heart and now purity of heart is possible, not because of me, but because of Christ in me. And I become a peacemaker, why? Because I have met the ultimate peacemaker and because he has made peace for me 
I now can make peace in this world through him. The reverse of the curse, the reverse of the curse in the Garden of Eden, man and God separated. The heart of man turns sin sick. Relationships between man kind is now severed, but in Christ, we're reconciled to God. We receive a new heart. And now, because of his mercy, there can be peace among us. That is the kingdom life. Father, I love you and I thank you, Lord, for your truth and your word. And I pray now, Father, that you would work in us creating this life so that by your power, we look like your people. Help us to know that we have entered into the kingdom through trusting you as our Lord and Savior. And then help us appropriate that righteousness so that we look like you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.